Hi guys, I'm going to plug this in real quick. I have some great news to share with you. I have written a book. For now, it's only available in Dutch, but I hope to get it out there in English in the future as well. It's becoming available pretty soon, actually, the 18th of October, so you can pre-order it now if you want. The Dutch title is Bomen in a Notendop. In English, that would be Trees in a Nutshell. And in this book, I will explain to you the evolution of trees, how they transport water, how they fixate carbon. For example, we all know the word photosynthesis, but what does it mean exactly? That's all things that will become clear in this book. I'll also tell you how uh, climate change is actually affecting trees and why having trees in a city environment is beneficial to us. So please check it out. But for now, I will let you get on with the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Lieselotte Ligne, a postdoctoral researcher in wood technology at Kent University. My co-host for today is Oit Kangur, a software quality assurance engineer. Welcome, Lieselotte and Oit. So I'm going to dive right in. Uh, my first question is always the same. Do you have a favorite science joke or anecdote or fun fact for us? I'll start with Lieselotte. Lieselotte, do you have something for us? Yes. So I was thinking about it, like, what should I tell? Because I was thinking first more in the way of uh, like talking about Schrodinger's cat or, you know, like one of these old uh, science things. But actually, I was thinking of telling an anecdote of something that happened more recently. So I was one year in Denmark as a researcher working at the University of Copenhagen. And then the weekend, I went to the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde. And I thought that was absolutely amazing because they are doing life science there. So they found these five Viking ships in the bottom of a fjord from a thousand years ago. And they dug them up and then tried to rebuild them. And they are studying the wood and all the wooden parts to really see how they made them before. And then they are trying to make them themselves again with only the equipment that was available during the Viking Age. So it's really interesting. And what they found was that for different wooden parts of the ship, they were using different parts of the tree that correspond to it. So they were really making use of the natural shapes occurring in the tree. For instance, like when you have a paddle or like, and officially it's, I think it's called an oar, they have these holders that are like V-shaped and they have to be very strong because these ships were going in the sea for weeks on end. So what they did, they, they used the place in the tree where the branches are occurring because you have naturally these V-shapes there and then it's very strong and dense. So I thought that was super cool the way the Vikings did that. Yeah, that's really cool. I really smart as well. Yeah, indeed. But they still had time to look at individual trees back then. <laughs> and Oit, do you have something for us? Um, it's kind of a scientific joke. Maybe not really, but it's like a self-burn. But uh, how do you know if someone has PhD? I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> Don't worry, they will just tell you themselves. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually a really short science fact for today, and that's just that the light from the sun for it to reach Earth it takes about eight minutes and 20 seconds. Oh, wow. That's really short. Short and long at the same time, because in our daily experience, light is instantaneous. When you put on the light, it reaches the whole room. But to get from the sun through Earth, it's eight minutes and 20 seconds. Wow. Cool. <laughs> Lizalot, uh, you work in wood technology. But just in general, like the field of wood technology, what does that mean? What are the different types of research in wood technology? Yeah, so I'm in the field of wood technology. So at our lab, people are working with different things. So I, I'm really into the field of wood protection. Um, so how can we make wood last longer, for instance, against decay by fungi or termites? And I'm then a specialist in fungal decay. Uh, but for instance, some of my colleagues are, are looking at wood-based building materials. How do they interact with water, for instance? How does MDF, some sort of fiberboard, how does it take up water? And then one of my other colleagues, she's working with poplar. So there's a very fast-growing wood and she's trying to find out how we can use that wood species to build very big wooden elements like cross-laminated timber. So the timber that is glued together to make big elements for um, apartment buildings, for instance. So it goes uh, very wide. Yeah. And what is the goal of that type of research? For example, if you check how much water MDF absorbs, why do you want to know that? Yeah, it's, it's just to uh, improve the material properties. So my colleague that's working on that, uh, he's using X-ray CT. So X-ray CT is a way to visualize the interior of an object. So he's looking over time how the 
wood fiber orientation, for instance, will affect the way the MDF is taking up water because it wouldn't be good if, if for instance, an MDF board completely changes the structure or it, it loses its functional property, for instance. So those are reasons why, why we look into that. And moisture is a really big issue always, uh, not only for wood, but for many different building materials and buildings. Like moisture, moisture is something that can majorly affect the structural property of a material. And CT, that's computer tomography. That's like mm -hmm. the same scans that they use in a hospital, for example, when people need a CT scan. That's the same system that they use, but you put wooden objects in there. Yeah, indeed. And like in the hospital, they don't want to x-ray you with too much energy. So they don't go really in super micro level focus. But since wood is not a living object, we can go to very high uh, resolution. So that's also really cool. You can really see inside of the wood material. And I use it, for instance, to look at fungal decay progress. So I put the wood in uh, and I observe it over a couple of weeks and I really see how the fungus is growing inside it and how different anatomical features or, or like the structural materials affecting that. To go a little bit more on CT, but not too much. So you put those wooden objects in there to see how their structure changes and you say they have a high resolution. But what is the resolution, for example, if you have a cell on your screen, is it like a pixel or is it like 20 centimeters? Well, it depends. We can change the settings. So maybe I should explain how X3CT works. If you can do that in a, an understandable way. I will try. <laughs> so you have a light source, an X-ray source that is emitting a, like a cone beam of X-rays. So visually, it would be like if you have a flashlight and, and you have like a circle of light uh, going through an object. In our uh, case, it's wood. So the wood, it's a material, so it will absorb part of the X-rays and part of the X-rays will go through it. And that will be detected by a detector, so a sort of camera that is taking a picture of the amount of X-rays that are coming through the object and the amount of energy that is being absorbed that's related to density, so the mass of your material. So we can really get a 3D image or like a 3D visualization of the density of an inside uh, structure. If I'm not mistaken, so that's what you said, like the energy that goes through and then you see some places it's more dense, so less energy goes through. And by doing the same imaging technique on several rotations, so you rotate the object, mm -hmm. then you know where that density is. And then based on those images, you can make that 3D object that you're talking yes, about. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, maybe now to dive a little bit more into your research. So you study fungal decay of wood. What does that entail exactly? So you have wood, you have fungus or uh, mold. What is happening? What are you looking at? Yeah. So um, if you ever go to a forest, sometimes you see a, like a dead tree or a tree that is laying over and then there's a big mushrooms growing on top of it. So it's a very natural thing that is occurring that if a piece of wood is dead and it, it's very moist, that, that the fungus will degrade it and sort of clean up the environment by degrading the wood. But of course, if you use it as a building material, you don't want the wood to be eaten by fungi. So we need to make sure that it's protected. And um, one way of doing that is just avoiding that it gets wet. For instance, if you have a table in your living room that is made of wood, you will never see fungal decay occurring because it just doesn't get wet. But if you have the same table outside and you don't protect it, or it's not a durable wood species, then of course, after some years, rot will occur. So that's what we're looking at, like how can we improve this resistance against fungal decay? And what I was really focused on is how can we do that without applying pesticides? Because in Europe, the biocide regulations have become more and more strict, and it's also not that for the environment. But there are many other ways to make sure that a material lasts longer. And also just to apply the right material in the right application so that if you have a higher fungal decay risk because it's, there's more water there, then don't apply a material that is not well fitted for that. So that implies that growth of a fungi needs water? Yes. So keeping the material dry is one way, but you're not always able to do that. Mm -hmm. Also, one point I want to make that you were saying that fungal decay in a forest is natural and that you see the mushrooms on the woods. Mm -hmm. But I assume you're not just looking at mushrooms, right? That's only a small part of the fungi. Yeah, actually, if we do decay experiments in the lab, we never grow actual mushrooms because it's actually the mycelium that is already eating a lot. If you see mushroom in the forest floor, even like just in the soil, the mushroom is like the fruiting body. And then underneath, there's a whole network of mycelium that is trying to find nutrients everywhere. And then the wood decaying organisms, they are very specialized. So they are super specialized in decaying wood. So there are a lot of fungal species that eat wood. But if you look at the whole amount of fungal species, only a small part of them are wood decayers. 
because they need all these special enzymes or um, mechanisms to eat wood because wood is actually, yeah, it's composed of different material like cellulose, hemicellulose, lignin, and lignin is a very hard material to degrade for most organisms. So. And yeah, fungi are different than plants, but just to have some comparison to better understand. Mm -hmm. So the mushroom that we're seeing could be seen like the flower of the plant, I think. And the mycelium, yeah, more or less the roots, it's not completely the same, but to have like some idea of what is happening. I think that would be a good comparison, uh, like a good example. When we look at the wood decay, we can you can really see the hyphae, like the, the fungal, yeah, it's like a threads that are going inside the wood and these are all cells that interact with their environment and they take up uh, nutrients they eat sugars they make enzymes go out of their hyphae and they degrade the wood you already mentioned that one point of your research is to reduce using pesticides mm -hmm. uh, because of regulations but uh, are there some sort of natural pesticides that can be used yeah they are always uh, looking for sort of fungicidal components that are occurring naturally. So there are a lot of tropical wood species, for instance, or also the European chestnut. They have um, a lot of components that are toxic for fungi. So there has been a lot of research to try and to extract those and then apply them on wood. But there are some constraints on that because First of all, it's not so easy always to extract these components and then to put it in another wood species. It's not always so easy because they should be also located in the right place in the wood because the wood has a very typical anatomical structure. So you have the vessels or the tracheids that are like these tubular cells. And yeah, you can put a lot of liquid in there, but that doesn't mean that those components will stay inside the wood. So they really have to get into the cell world. So the success rate of that is not always super good. It's not enough to just spray it on the surface. It really has to get into the cells. Well, it depends on the application you want to use it for. For instance, if you have a wooden pole that you want to put in the ground, the ground is really a continuously moist uh, area. So it's very easy also for products to leach out of the wood. And if you only have a surface layer, yeah, it would be very easy to get a sort of a, an opening there for the fungus. And once they have one part they can go into, yeah, then you could have a problem. So it's that's definitely in those applications that they are still using um, these very strong uh, fungicides when you have these continuous moist conditions. But uh, for instance, like for your garden shed, you can just use a, a type of coating or a, that is water repellent and just reapply it every year or every few years and then uh, it's working very well. But the problem is like if you're building with wood and then the, the wood is inside your walls, and you have a certain application where there is a moisture risk. So not everywhere in the building there is a moisture risk. But if you have a moisture risk, yeah, you cannot break open the wall and reapply this uh, coating. So yeah, I think uh, the future is in, in finding these mass timber products that are that are actually, for instance, drying out faster or like that they have a sort of top layer that is maybe not penetrable because you have uh, other ways of uh, protecting wood against fungi. They are um, trying to make, for instance, uh, thermally modified wood. Then uh, they put the wood in the oven, but that's like an industrial oven, right? They keep, you can apply vacuum or whatever, and then they put up the heat until 180 or 200 degrees. And then um, the wood becomes more water repellent. Uh, so that is really great. So they apply it already for um, outdoor applications for terraces and for cladding. But the problem is it costs a lot of money. So nobody is willing to pay 10% more for their wood if you going to put it inside the wall. So you do it for a nice finishing cladding. You want to pay a bit more, but then if, if it's for inside the wall, like nobody will pay 10% more for that. So um, there's also some structural properties that are, if you put it in the oven, of course, it would becomes more brittle. So you cannot uh, really use it as a structural um, element. The change in properties of that wood that has been in the oven is permanent. Yeah, it's just that it absorbs less water uh, because um, yeah, they, they have to find out exactly. There's a lot of hypotheses as to why it is more water repellent. Like one thing is like, oh, there is less hydroxyl sorption sites where, where water can attach to. That's one hypothesis. And then they also, they think it's for several reasons actually. But the, the main thing is that it takes up less water and that it also dries out much, fast, much faster. So that is always beneficial. But in the end, it can take up water. Like if you would put it in a bucket of water for, for a week, it will also, you take it out, it will have a lot of water inside there. But yeah, it can just dry out very easily. And then the fungi don't have time to, to start decaying. 
I, I just want to ask uh, one small question still. You use the word fungicide and pesticide in the same sentence, more or less, not in the same, but yeah. they are different, right? Or is it the same in this case? Well, fungicide is just a type of pesticide. So pesticide is the general word and fungicide yes, is... Yeah. yeah, okay. Because when people talk about pesticides, I think they more think about insects. Stuff yeah, like indeed, um, insects and also yeah, for crop protection. But yeah, they also use it uh, in for wood. And there a lot. most of the fungicides are copper-based, for instance, uh, in the wood sector, uh, th those that are still allowed. But uh, yeah, I don't know, because like, um, so I was doing that during my PhD, and now I'm going to do a postdoc. I, I know I started already. <laughs> um, but um, there have been so many innovations in the wood sector, and like people have been doing so much amazing things, like um, making this densified wood that is stronger than steel, or making transparent wood that you could use for windows. I mean, I'm not sure if it's entirely still wood after all these chemical processes that have occurred to make it, but like, uh, or self-shaping wood, like making these uh, plywood towers that, that curve by themselves based on the yeah, properties of the, the wood itself. Hold it right there. You're actually blowing yeah. my mind right now. <laughs> yeah. So what did you, you have wood that is transparent, like glass, wood yeah. that is stronger than steel. Hmm. Can you say some? How how does that happen? Yeah, well, there's this paper in Nature um, that got a lot of attention. So there's a group of researchers that tried to make a wooden beam that is stronger than steel. So they densified it. So they yeah uh, made the wood more dense, and then yeah, it's, it just becomes stronger because they just want to show that yeah. Uh, for instance, if you make apartment buildings, you almost always need steel because if you go for uh, very high floors, the structural properties. Are, that are necessary you need a certain amount of strength and wood by itself like a solid wooden beam doesn't have enough strength so they're always looking in ways how could we build apartment buildings with wood and then what i think is actually a more uh, like what is already in practice being used is these cross laminated timber and the glue lamb so where they actually glue uh, wooden beams together to make a stronger material and then you can really go high rise there's a really cool uh, building in norway for instance that is the tallest wood-based building in the world. And now in Antwerp, they're also going to make one. So yeah, it's becoming more, uh, more common. And then, but this, to be honest, this um, transparent wood, I think it was a really cool paper, but in the end, it's at a certain point, you can ask yourself, are you still talking about wood if you're doing so many chemical processes afterwards? But I think it's a cool way of trying to think, okay, what if we want to make instead of class a bio-based window, for instance, like, I think it's cool that people are thinking about that. I was wondering, uh, yeah, thinking about it uh, philosophically, if you like making real class out of uh, sand, yeah, mostly, I guess. So <laughs> we also won't call it sand anymore. No, yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you would also not think that glass is made of sand if you're a toddler and you look at it. I think it's uh, difficult to make the connection. Yeah. So, and there's a lot you work on this fungal decay so you said you use ct scans to check mm -hmm. how the fungus is growing in the wood mm -hmm. but imagine you have done that you know how the fungus is growing how do you stop it what what is your next step yeah so the next step now is that um so i was saying there's there's been so many innovations in the wood sector but they're not always they're just not really always focused on the interaction with moisture or on fungal decay they're almost always <laughs> focused on improving the mechanical properties or like for oriented strand board osb for instance that that's made of wood strands like to find a, a new purpose for like leftover wood or like wood that is that cannot like not structural wood beams that can be used so like from an economic uh, perspective and what i want to do is is look at, at all the inventions that have been made and really try to see how can we use and combine them for wood protection for making sure that in certain risk um, applications, the wood can last longer without having to apply pesticides. So that's the idea of the project that just started. So yeah, we'll see uh, what's going to happen in the next uh, three years, if I can find uh, some useful um, applications. So am I correct in assuming that you check actually the innovations done by other people, and then you yes. check in those innovations, how well are they protected against fungal decay? Yes, because we have at our lab, at the wood lab, we have uh, the XVCT, it's a super in, like innovative way of, of looking at wood. So there's not many labs that have that uh, equipment available and, and not for working with wood. So in that perspective, we really have an advantage at Ghent University. So 
the idea would be then that I look at these different structural modification strategies and, and try to incorporate them like multiple together sometimes or some sometimes separate and then putting them in, in the x-ray machine and then seeing really like okay how is this affecting water uptake how is this affecting fungal decay progress and and really trying to identify uh, promising pathways to continue with that and then i assume you have to actively try to grow actually fungi on your wood yes i assume you can do that in different ways and doesn't that also affect your results and how do you cope with that so yeah, there's a lot of standards of how, how you should grow uh, fungi and which fungi to grow because you have different fungi that have different mechanisms of degrading wood because you have, for instance, brown rot fungi and white rot fungi. And they are called like that because visually it looks like brown attack and white attack uh, on the on the wood. The wood sample turns white or it turns brown. Um, but yeah, you can imagine that something that works for one fungus could sometimes not work for another fungus because they have a different mechanism. Um, so that is one thing. Yeah. You should incorporate representative fungi from the different classes of how they attack. And then sample size is also an important thing. So in lab tests, we try to replicate what would happen outdoors, but we want to do it much faster. So because outdoors, if you would wait for a wooden pole to degrade, you can wait 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. If you have to do your PhD in four years, you don't have time for that. So we try to do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would be a long experiment yeah yeah so we still do those experiments but it's like done by multiple people after multiple years so we try to do accelerated tests so trying to make the fungus as happy as possible creating very moist conditions uh, giving them a lot of food before they start attacking the wood and then um yeah we have very small samples so that the fungi can overgrow it in a week or two and just start eating it well in in reality if you have a big wooden beam, it would take a long while for the fungus to overgrow it and to create a certain microclimate in there. So yeah, but then if you have these different sample sizes, that could really affect the results because I'm going to look into structure right now. So yeah, you, you probably know this, but wood has a, already by itself a specific anatomy because if you look at the tree, the growth direction, so a tree that is standing up, the vessels are going up, so they're transport. It's like big tubes of water that are transporting water up and down the tree. So you can imagine that in that direction of the wood, water will be transported very easily. So usually, as if you look at a wooden building material, you will always protect this. It's called the end grain. So you will protect this these water tubes, so that that no water can enter through there. Because yeah, then you would easily have an issue. So if you work with very small samples, the fungus can very easily go in through the side and then. If you have only a very small block, it can motion it, this small block very easily. Well, if you would have a, a length of one meter, yeah, by the time it motions this whole one meter object, yeah, it would take, take a much longer time. So I'm trying to increase my sample size now also to, to still have this effect of what, do, what if you have a certain layer somewhere? Uh, yeah, otherwise we wouldn't see this. And you also test for the different types of fungi or do you focus on one type of fungus? I usually focus on two, so one representative of the brown rot and one of the white rot. So that's Coniophora uh, putiana and Trametus versicolor. But then for um, thermally modified wood, for instance, they discovered that another species is actually much better at degrading it. So that's called Poria placenta. So then, then you think like, oh, maybe I should also include that one in your studies. But yeah, it should be feasible always. Yeah. So that's why it's good to always um, collaborate with a lot of people and uh, get a lot of information, like what should be best uh, in this case. Um. While we're talking about species, uh, you first mentioned you or your colleagues have been working on poplar. Uh, yes. What other tree species are you, are you working on? Yeah, so in wood science, we usually work with the species that are most commonly uh, yeah, used in the wood sector. Um, so like spruce and Scots pine, for instance, in Europe are very common. But like in my PG, because I was looking at why are certain wood species more degraded than others? And is it only to do with some fungicidal component in their wood or is it maybe some hydrophobic properties or, or the structure that's playing a role? I was also looking into tropical wood species because they have uh, very interesting properties as well, like uh, African paduk and uh, gaboon, for instance. And I like working with these tropical wood species because they also look nice. And, yeah. <laughs> and you have these treatments that you mentioned, like uh, heat treatments. Yeah. I assume this also has a different effect on the different species of woods that you're using. 
Yes, indeed. Like for now, they've mostly been using it on softwoods, so coniferous wood species uh, such as spruce and uh, Scots pine. Um, but for instance, if you would apply it on a hardwood species like beech, the, the 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 wood chemistry of these species is 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 yeah different. Like the 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 ratio of different polymers is also different, so the effect is indeed different. And and that's what makes it also interesting, but also hard. Like how can we optimize these processes if it's different for different wood species? And and what should we focus on? Yeah, I know that there are different fungi that uh, usually either symbiotic uh, mm -hmm. or also as you are looking to. Uh, fungi that are like decaying are there some sort of species that can be like both not maybe at the same time but if on different uh, environments oh <laughs> well yeah that, that's interesting um but like mostly these symbiotic fungi like i understood it like um you have this ectomysorrhiza can you mycorrhiza yeah um that they have a really symbiotic relationship with trees uh, because they um, use some of the nutrients that from, from the tree, but they also um, making nutrients free for the tree. So it's like, uh, or maybe you can explain that better. Yeah. So the, the mycorrhiza actually get sugars from the tree and they provide nutrients and water to the tree because they are really small. They have a really large surface area so they can reach more water and they can reach like um, nitrogen and phosphorus and mm -hmm. they supply that to the tree and in exchange they get sugars to grow their own bodies but i don't think they actually result in decay of wood i think that's a different species no. yeah yeah so your question about having a species that can be both symbiotic and the other like uh, sort of predator um yeah. i don't know i don't know about that i haven't heard about it and so you only focus on the decaying fungi right not on the symbiotic fungi yeah, we only focus on on uh, wood degrading fungi because that's uh, our field of interest. But uh, lately, we've been having uh, more questions for collaborations on using fungi to grow uh, building materials, because fungi have um, yeah they are able to uh, eat a lot of waste material. So in that way, if you can grow building material that is made from waste, that is actually a very good uh, property, especially now, because the scarcity of the building materials and the scarcity of the raw materials is, is really a, a big issue. And they've been making some really cool products like um, beams made from hemp and, and mycelium so that the mycelium is actually gluing these fibers together and make, creating a, a beam like that. And, and I'm also putting that in the X-ray CT scanner to, to see if the building material is homogeneous and, and if the strength properties are good or, or not. So um, yeah, that's really cool, I think. That's an, a dead fungus? Yes, indeed. So they, yeah, at first it's alive. So they grow a lot of fungus, a lot of mycelium, and they mix it with the hemp fibers and they let it grow a little bit longer, like a couple of days so that they can really connect these hemp fibers together. And then, um, yeah, they kill them off uh, by yeah, heating and drying them. Yeah, so you don't want them to survive because if then it becomes yeah. wet, they can continue growing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be a big problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> to continue with this, so at first they are still a little bit growing with the hemp are they a little bit like decaying the hemp or mainly just interacting yeah i think in the beginning like the amount of decay will not be be very big because if you do um fungal decay experiment it's only after two or three weeks that that they can really start um eating part of the mass so i think uh, because they have a lot of, enough sugars from their own growth medium i don't think they they really start decaying the hemp uh, significantly in in a couple of days and if decay only starts after two or three weeks, what happens in those first weeks? What is the fungus doing? Yeah, so the fungus first is trying to reach the nutrients. So it's overgrowing the wood, it's growing inside of the wood. And then uh, it's making it wet. So making sure, uh, because if you make the wood wet, then already some nutrients and some components will dissolve and they can eat that. And then they're also, I mean, I don't think they do it consciously. It's just like the way a fungus uh, works. Um, and then they start excreting enzymes or ferrum triplus. How would you call that? It's like uh, certain metals or... Um, I, I actually don't know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's just like they, they're not, it's not, not only enzymes, but also other components that make that the wood is starting to degrade and then they, they can eat from it. But it takes a long while before you have actually significant uh, mass loss. 
so the the fungus needs to have a lot of energy before it can start eating actually yeah yeah and a lot of water moisture is really a key uh, key element in fungal degradation yeah and the fungus actually makes the wood wet yes because um some type of fungi has already been proven that they can transport water. So if uh, you have a growth medium that is very moist, they they uh, they transport water to wet the wood. But also when they're eating, when they're um, they they're transferring sugars, like um, like they're making sugar into carbon dioxide and water. So that's um, they produce water while they're eating actually. So that's how they also make uh, it wet. Yeah. So that's respiration, the opposite of photosynthesis. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So in photosynthesis, you have CO2 and water that you're converting into sugars. And during respiration, you're actually doing the opposite. You're converting sugars into water and CO2. Actually the same as we are doing when we breathe out CO2, that's respiration, right? Or the product of respiration. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, photosynthesis because maybe I haven't told the reason why we're so interested in wood as a building material. So first of all, like wood is a good build, a sustainable building material because you can grow it you don't have to and it so you can renew it all the time so that's great but also trees are doing photosynthesis so they're storing carbon uh, from the carbon dioxide from the air they're taking up into their biomass so they're storing carbon so you can actually use buildings as carbon stocks if you if you um built with bio-based building materials or with wood you can really store carbon into a building for 5200 years so that's really great um, and if you do it properly, you can reuse the wood after the building is being demolished and maybe process it into another wood-based building material. And so it goes on and on and on, and you don't have to burn it until the very end. And then the carbon dioxide goes back into the air. Yeah. That also holds for a lot of uh, wooden furniture that people have. You can have that furniture like your table, it stores carbon for maybe 20 years, or if you want to remove it, then you can recycle it maybe in like... Uh, a frame for uh, a picture frame and after that you can pulp it for paper mm -hmm. and that can be recycled also I think seven times that paper can be recycled and after that you can still burn it yes indeed so you have like a real carbon stock in your home yeah indeed yeah awesome. it really pains me um if if um wood from the forestry sector is immediately sent to these big factories where they turn it into energy I think it's such a loss I think it's really yeah. uh, not of, not from our time anymore to to use wood uh, for energy production, especially not in Europe. Uh, yeah. So, uh, is it known like which is the, what is the or how old is the oldest uh, wooden building that still exists, or like approximately? Well, there's some discussion about that actually, <laughs> because in Japan you have really old wooden buildings that are like uh, these old wooden temples that are. I wouldn't know exactly how old, but like definitely hundreds of years old, like or maybe even thousand. But then uh, we had a at a conference, there was a speaker from Japan talking about this once. And then he said that actually every hundred years they're replacing parts of the building. So the wood itself is not hundreds of years old. So that's a bit like, yeah. Yeah, um, so if you replace a wall every 50 years, they have four walls and 200 years, you have a new building. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, um, but but there are buildings that the wood lasts a really long time. Yeah, it can last. Yeah, I should look it up. Actually, I don't know exactly, but uh, definitely more than a hundred years. Yeah, I, yeah. Even in, uh, I think that was crazy. In um, in Norway, in the north of Norway, there were wooden buildings, just like uh, sheds for the cows that were there for more like for two or 300 years that they say like how how long can this wood last even if it's just for like a cow shed you know so it's not really a protected place or whatever so yeah and actually that that brings up an interesting point in Norway it's cold but it's also wet is it then harder for fungi to grow or easier yeah so cold makes it harder for the fungi to grow so they they really like uh temperatures from more than 15 degrees so 20 degrees is ideal for fungi but indeed wet conditions are, are very important too so with climate change now it's uh, like those areas that are now a bit colder but very wet that are they becoming hotter they, they might have more issues uh, with fungi and for us actually we're now like Belgium Germany uh, Denmark we're all super into fungal decay research when it comes to wood protection 
And then in France and Spain, they're more focused on uh, termites, for instance. And then they're saying, yeah, you should already start uh, working on termites as well, because in 20, 30 years, you might have termites also in Belgium. Like if you look at this summer, like uh, a whole month of uh, sunshine, I don't think we usually have that. And those are conditions that, that termites like. So. Yeah, and they're recording in, in August, and they predict actually a heat wave for the next week as well, or the next few weeks. Yeah. So it, it's getting worse and worse every year. Yeah, indeed. Here in Estonia, we still have some time. Yeah. <laughs> At least for the termites, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, the, the transport of water by fungi, I, that's interesting to me as well, because I did some work on foliar water uptake. Mm-hmm. And there, there was a paper on uh, sequoia, so like the one of the largest trees in the world. And they also absorb water with their leaves or with the needles. And it was speculated that it was actually helped mm-hmm. by fungi growing on the leaf that were actually transporting the water into the leaf to rehydrate okay. it. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. that's actually cool that it's happening on the leaf level, but also on the wood level, then in decay, actually. <laughs> in yeah, the leaf level, yeah. it was to, yeah, it was a sort of symbiosis, more or less. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay. That's just as a, a small side note. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if I remember, so you work on wood decay, but if I remember well, uh, we worked at the at same faculty at some point, and mm-hmm. there were like a really large row of wooden chairs that were sitting outside, and there was also a decay experiment, right? Yes, indeed. So what was being checked there, or what were you looking into? Uh, yeah, so that's uh, Stan, uh, my colleague that uh, made all those chairs. And they were looking at different wood protection methods uh, to see uh, which one would last long. And it was nice because that makes our research very visible and is being used by the students to, to sit on. So that's really cool. So yeah, we're now, our lab uh, exists uh, 50 years. So it was during COVID, so now it's 50 plus years. And we're thinking of hosting a big event and also placing um, uh, like a very nice uh, wooden dome on the faculty. So uh, also for visibility, but just to show that, uh, and also in a, as an experiment, like with different wood species then that we can check uh, over the years. That's really cool. And But you have also been talking about using the right wood for the right application. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have some insights on that? What is the right wood for a certain application? How How do you determine that? Yeah, when it comes to wood, you you have the different wood species and they were uh, examining the natural durability of all these wood species. And then they say, for instance, ah, if you have wood in ground contact, you need to have uh, wood that has a high natural durability so that in a lab fungal test is scoring very well and it's not uh, being eaten or has, doesn't have a lot of muscle. So if you put a pole in the ground, you should use um, chestnut or robinia or something like that. But now more recently, since this aspect of moisture is becoming more to the foreground, um, you can see that, for instance, in wood fiber insulation, so that's not a, not a solid wood, but you have like a fibrous uh, wooden boards that are, that are used for insulation. You can see that in, under the roof, where, where there's a high risk of moisture, they, they will add some hydrophobic components. For instance, yeah, you have the bituminized fiber boards, so that's Bitumen is like a very uh, chemical <laughs> product, but you can also add um, paraffin, for instance. Um, and they, the, the boards they apply there, they, they are very good. They, they absorb water, but not that much, and they dry out very fast. But then in the interior walls, you don't need such boards. You can just uh, use loose wood fibers there, or um, yeah, just uh, some other fiber boards that are not really, don't have a special moisture uh, application. Yeah. And you mentioned, Paraffin to avoid water, but paraffin, that's like candle wax. Yeah, paraffin is a kind of wax, but that's also inspired by the real wood species because uh, a lot of wood species, they have waxes and resins that make them more hydrophobic. Um, So in that way, and you can also just apply the paraffin on the top layer. So it doesn't have to be inside the whole uh, material. As I understand, the main point is to, or one of the main points uh, for protecting wood is to just to get rid of the moisture or re- repel the moisture. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, I've also seen that when wood or is used uh, or it stays under the water, like uh, stably under the water, then it also doesn't decay like almost at all. So can it also be then used as a material for underwater structures? 
that's really interesting that you say that it's indeed such a counterintuitive um, thing but indeed uh, wood that is under the water that that is super super moist that can also not be decayed by fungi and they also found that like uh, when a wooden log is like water log they say then so super high uh, moistures um, they, they don't get decayed either but then if you so they use uh, for instance in Venice um, and in many harbors they use wooden structures on the water to for instance hold like these signs for boats or like yeah that that boats um need to know where to where to where, where to go and there was this really interesting presentation on that because there are also marine borers so you have in the sea you have a lot of organisms that actually also some of them have become specialized in in eating wood so then it's then a different problem but they don't always occur or they don't always occur in that big quantity so wood could last before like 50 years or something in the in the seaside like near venice but then now because um the waterways changed a little bit and uh, also the temperature of the water changed. Uh, they see that the wood is only lasting 15 years anymore. So there are a lot more marine borers. So um, yeah, it can really change a lot also. So yeah, maybe one of the important things is indeed the, the climate also really affects uh, which organisms that occur and, and how, um, how severe the degradation can become. That's a big difference going from 50 to 15 years. Yeah, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. And yeah, it's something to to take it to consider because um, you don't mind maybe replacing every 30 years or 40 years. But if you have to replace your, your things every 10 or 15 years, suppose, yeah. How sustainable is it then still to, to use that wood? And don't you also have a weak point like the, the contact between the woods and the air, the, like the water surface or a little higher where it gets absorbed. Isn't that a weak point in the woods? Yeah, that's definitely a weak point. And where you can also, maybe you can notice it if you're going to sort of seaside uh, or harbor where you see a lot of wooden elements, you can see that often the top is, is quite degrade, degraded, but then the part that is completely submerged is not. So that's interesting to see as well. When it's in the air, is it then degrading by fungi or is it something else? Um, yeah, you have so many different organisms. You also have uh, bacteria and, and my other microorganisms that can sort of degrade. Maybe I didn't make that distinction clear, but you have uh, mold and you have really decay. And mold is a very superficial, like on the surface, like if you have... Um, like if you have even on your wall and in your in your bathroom, for instance, you have some black mold that's very superficial. It's not inside of the wall. It's just like if you can if you take some uh, detergents, you can wash it off almost like it, it only eats the, the sugars or the very easily available nutrients. But decay organisms, so root rotting uh, fungi, they are really able to structurally decay wood. And that's why we're so interested in it because yeah, it could be very dangerous if, if the structure of the structural property of your wooden element is not good anymore because they really are decaying the, the structural um, basis of the wood. So can I then assume if you have a wooden object in your house and mm -hmm. you see some fungi on the surface, it's probably less bad than if you have something inside it. Yes, indeed. Like even because, um, yeah, but more, mostly it's a sign that something's going on, right? So if you have a lot of molds, that's the first thing you see. So if your wood remains, for instance, if you had a, like, sometimes you see it like uh, people doing construction works and there are some oriented SRAM board or some MDR, like some plates there that are becoming wet. The first thing you see is, is the mold. And it's only like spontaneously decay occurring. It only happens like after a couple of months, uh, usually because they take a while to settle and to start degrading. Uh, yeah, because the spores are in the air, but by the time they, they really start, uh, takes a while. And can you have a fungus in your wood at home, but you don't see it? Let me put it like that. If you have a fungus at home in your wood and your wood is decaying, how do you know that it's there if you can't see it at the surface? Yeah, so one of the most severe fungi uh, is Serpula lacrimans it's one of the fungi um, so the, the one that I'm researching Cuneifora putiana they call it the basement fungus because you usually see it in your basement so if you have some wooden elements in your basement and it's your basement is sometimes a very humid environment like because of floodings there can sometimes be moisture in there like or water in there for a really long time and you can really sometimes see the fruiting bodies of the fungus and or what you sometimes see is like a white stain or like a whitish brown stain on the wall um, that is sort of 
con like dense mycelium and then yeah it's going further but with this other one Serpila lacrimans it's very scary because it can be in the basement or like have its fruiting bodies in the basement but then it goes into all the wooden elements up and all of a sudden you have next to your window a fruiting body of the fungus and then you know shit this fungus is all over my house so and it's really but that doesn't occur that often that fungus but um we have seen some images and it's really scary to see it because you have to yeah you have to start all over again with your building then yeah. so once you actually see it it's too late you, you have to remove everything that's wood based well, it depends, like it can also be very localized just in the attic or in the in the basement. So that's really, I mean, by the time it's it's all over your house, I think it should have taken 15, 20 years. So um, I'm saying numbers, but that's um, not scientific. It's what I'm estimating. On the same topic, can you then uh, with some sort of devices or can you like somehow detect like where inside the wall is it? Yeah, they're trying to now uh, with moisture detectors. So if you could see that there is a lot of moisture in a certain uh, area, that then, then there's, there's a sign that something's wrong. Because mo even if there's no fungus, moisture by itself can also be very um, bad for your building elements, not only for wood, but for, for concrete as well and steel as well. So, um. But those techniques are not always optimal, right? Because I, I don't know, yeah. it, it's not totally the same, but I remember that there was a large tree at faculty and they checked it and it had internal rot. So they cut it down because it was going to die. Mm -hmm. And when they cut it down, it didn't have internal rot. So there oh was something, God. yeah. So it, it was a bad detection actually. Yeah, well, they're trying now like um, colleagues of mine from the Faculty of Architecture, like uh, Civil Engineering and Arch Architecture. They, they also put um, like moisture um, pins and stuff in the walls or like um, really sensors that they can use later on to, to look at. I think that's really interesting um, and that can tell you a lot more, but yeah, that's not something you would do if you buy a, yeah, build a house yourself. These fungus that you, or the fungi that you check that decay wood, can they also occur in a living tree or not really only in dead wood? Yeah, they can start degrading in a living tree, but a living tree has mechanisms to, um, to make sure that they are protected. So for instance, they will never start, like the bark of a tree is protecting uh, the wood against fungal decay. So when will fungal decay occur? Like for instance, when you have some insects or another, uh, somebody cut apart in the wood, then there is um, yeah, a real literal wound. And from this wound, uh, a lot of decaying organisms can start to to decay and then it can be hard for the tree to battle it but it has a certain mechanism so a tree has a lot of resin for instance so there might be some resin there and it will also try to heal the wound like create new bark around it and um, yeah in that way like if you have a tree that is not too stressed it often can um, can battle against fungal decay okay so the fungus is trying but the tree is still battling it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And when you have dead wood yeah there's nothing the wood can do so the fungus is attacking it and then the fungus yeah. is winning yeah indeed and also the fungus has time eh? so it takes a really long time to degrade all this wood um and of course you have some uh, tree species that have so many fungicidal components that they cannot be eaten by fungi but uh they, they don't yeah it's usually tropical wood species that are so extremely um durable yeah but it is actually interesting because you said that some species have resin. That's mostly the coniferous species. Mm -hmm. So like uh, spruce and pine. Mm -hmm. So they are better protected against fungi, but there are also fungi that are specialized in these species. So yeah. how does that work? They are able to cope with the resin? It's most, it has mostly to do with the type of lignin. So um, the type of lignin that is occurring in hardwoods and softwoods is, is mostly different or like the amount of one type of lignin versus the other and um, the way they circumvent this lignin barrier is different and and that, that's why uh, for instance uh, it's um, white rot can attack better the hardwoods than the softwoods for instance no. is, is there a, a simple way to explain what lignin is in wood is it just a chemical compound yeah, it's actually um, a whole complex of different polymers that are connected together and they have a really hard time defining what lignin is because it's so different. Uh, like um, there's one, I, I have seen a PhD that was about two types of lignin. So four years working on two types of lignin. So it's really hard to define what is part of this lignin, how can we 
to find what yeah. this lignin is. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just like you have, it's always easy when it's easy. Like you have cellulose and that's like a, a whole chain of um, glucoses. So it's really easy. Uh, and then you have hemicellulose, which is the same, but like with branches. So it's a bit more complex. And then you have lignin, which is just like a whole mass of polymerase that are connected in some ways together. And there's a lot of other chemical compounds in there besides sugar and yeah, they don't really, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the role of that lignin is purely protecting the wood or does it have other properties as well? Yeah, it's also, um, it has to do with the strength properties and the fiber properties of the wood. So a lot of fibrous crops, for instance, hemp and flax also have a lot of lignin. Uh, well, my next question is actually an academic one. You're already doing a postdoc, so I assume you want to stay in academia at least for a little while. Uh, what do you like about it so much? Yeah, um, so I really like academia. So that's also why I chose. So I did one year postdoc in Denmark, and now three years I'm going to do a postdoc in uh, in Belgium. And I really like the mix of activities in academia. They're really well tailored to what I like to do. So um, I really like uh, inventing new experiments and brainstorming with people about new experiments. So that that is really nice. I like working with uh, fancy equipment like X-ray CT and trying to figure out how to apply it for my research, which is not always. Uh, so straightforward and I really uh, I get a lot of energy of guiding students uh, so I really love that and I think that is a part that is in academia that is not always so easy if you go to the private uh, industry um, for instance now I have a new intern uh, from Germany and she just arrived uh, last week but it's been really great like having somebody else to work with you on the project and like um, that's asking so many interesting questions that you don't, didn't think of because you're already so uh, stuck in your own way of thinking <laughs> Um, yeah, and also the collaborations and the freedom in your collaboration. So if I go to a conference, I'm talking to many people and then you have some people that are doing really interesting stuff and you can just say, oh, that suits very well with my research. Uh, let's just start a collaboration and send me some samples or, or we will share, do a short research day and uh, share some experiences. So I really like uh, that part as well. And the ex yeah. exchange of knowledge between different people. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And the openness, at least in my uh, field, there's, yeah, yeah, it's very open. That depends yeah. a lot on the field and, yeah. and the people you meet as well, I, I assume, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And Oit, uh, so you left academia. Is there a good reason why or just felt there was time for a change? I guess uh, there could be probably several reasons. Maybe the first one was like uh, just quite practical one. I guess it could be like everywhere, but uh, especially here in Estonia, I felt that uh, the academia is not that uh, um, rewarding or it's not so appreciated. And uh, it's also the uncertainty of the future that, uh, you know, getting uh, projects and uh, funding. And that was kind of thing that uh, a little bit scared me away. And, uh, but yeah, probably there are some other reasons that, Maybe one can say, but uh, if you have, if you are like interested enough of the topic, then you get past it. So maybe I also, then I wasn't uh, like interested enough of my topic. So I couldn't get uh, past uh, of that uh, con of, uh, of academia. But I also, uh, as uh, Zlata mentioned about uh, like tutoring uh, or giving lectures, that was also like part that I really loved. So like uh, talking to, younger colleagues and uh, teaching them and getting some interesting ideas from them as well. So that part I, I really love. But I also really understand your reasoning because that's one of my main problems right now is the uncertainty in having a job. If you have a contract, it's always for one to three to three years. So that's quite short. And then you have to find a new project or yeah, have find a new job. And that can be really stressful. And I'm nearing the end of my contract, so I'm looking for a new job. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I think, yeah, I totally understand. And I think if I leave academia, that would probably be the main reason because I need to have like a more steady job. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Like, um, I, but for now, I like the flexibility and the fact that you have to sort of reinvent yourself every two or three years and try to find uh, something interesting, uh, interesting position or an interesting project. So because there was a, an opening um, for a full time position, like as a wood scientist in a really cool institute in Norway. 
uh, and I didn't apply for it because I thought, no, then it's for life and you have to stay there. Like, oh, it's like fixed. You cannot go anywhere else or like, you can go on research days, but like, I wasn't ready for that. So for yeah. now, I still like the, like the flexibility, but I think maybe in five years or 10 years, I would also want a permanent position somewhere. So, yeah. Oh, but I get you as well, because it is nice to have the flexibility and to be able to change your topic or, or go in a different way. And just the intellectual freedom is amazing. But if you don't have a project in two or three years, then you can have all the freedom you want because you don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. So everyone who's listening, uh, Jaren is open for... <laughs> for <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I assume that's actually what you like most about academia. So like the freedom and the, the way you can change your topic. And like you said, you have to reinvent yourself. Is there something you don't like about academia or not really? Yes, there are some things, especially if you are in academia for a longer time that you really start to notice uh, that, that there are some systemic or some structural issues. Um, so I'm in the board of Belgian women in science and uh, each year we organize a uh, women in science day and uh, this year we tackled the topic of um, inclusive recruitment uh, and yeah, uh, gender fair recruitment and it's very striking to me that um, you have different ways of, of, of hiring people at university so you have the scholarship based uh, fundings that are actually done by the government so FW for instance that is giving out grants and those procedures are kind of transparent like you have the scoring grid beforehand the jury is uh, like a very big jury composed of international people and it's all I mean probably there are still things to improve but it, it's a very transparent you know what they expect and you can sort of work on it to get there at a certain level if they like if you want to apply for a postdoc you already know this four years beforehand like what they will expect at that time so you can sort of yeah, make sure you go for these expectations. And it's it's like um, a bit of a transparent way of, 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 of uh, evaluating people. But then you have these PhD and postdoc and even professor positions at the university for which there is already funding. And then it really depends on the individual professors, uh, their, their mentality and the, their vision on how they do the recruitment process. Like uh, implicit bias is something that is like often forgotten or like completely not worked on and the way these uh, recruitment procedures go is often very yeah just on ad hoc and on the go and they're not really uh, taking uh, things into account well there are so many knowledge available of how to do it well uh, for instance the young academy has done a lot about implicit gender bias and just inclusive assessment and actually the research council in the netherlands has really cool tools like videos and um written toolkits uh, to, to make sure that that, that implicit bias is, is not such a big uh, part of the recruitment process. And I think there's a lot of work there and they're expecting the individual professors to take the initiatives themselves there. And I think this, this should change and it should be way more systemic and, and uh, better handled. No. Well, um, obviously I, I have never encountered the problem of being a woman in science, but I know there are a lot of problems uh, or things that could be improved. Did you have that experience yourself? Did you find trouble in science because you're a woman? Well, not that much yet, but it's true. Like when people see me, like first time they don't often take me seriously. Most people, when they met, meet me, they think I'm a master's student. Well, actually, I'm a postdoctoral researcher. So it's like, at least when you see me, you often have already this implicit bias. It's not. Um, bad intended or whatever it's just something that people have it's it's a system that also works well for yourself if you have some pre predefined uh, way of thinking in your head it, it's a very normal thing to do so that's why i think it's good that there are these um well thought out procedures of how to do recruitment process because then you can avoid a lot of these uh, biases for instance like the way candidates are chosen if you define very well the qualities you're looking for before you start interviewing and you really score on those qualities then you're not going to all of a sudden take majorly into account certain qualities that actually don't matter like uh, sometimes people think that like for instance a woman is often asked like oh but what about your family while uh while a man they, they will never ask him like did you have children already or are you getting children now or whatever like they don't care it's even seen as good quality or also like what they showed in research is that like um 
being young, like a young candidate as a man is often an advantage because they're seen as ambitious, while being a young candidate as a woman is often seen as inexperienced. Well, they're just researchers from the same age and the same level of experience. So it's a bit sad that this bias is there and it's not, it's really not only bad people that have this bias, just everybody, you yourself also have this bias. Like we did this whole thing about picture scientists. And if you picture scientists, you often see like in your head, like this old man with a lab coat. While if you look at the real scientists that are out there, they're people from all ages and all backgrounds and all genders. Yeah, no, that's true. I might be wrong, but maybe it's also part they think you're a master student because you look quite young. And doesn't that also play a role or do you think it's just gender-based? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, I, that's, that's just... Uh... The way, the way I look, but that that's not only women that have that. So that's why by a gender, like a implicit bias is not only about gender. It's also about your background, it's about your age, the way um, you appear. Um, yeah, so it has a lot of things. So it's not only like this kind of assessment procedure, they wouldn't only benefit women, they would benefit yeah, everybody. Yeah. But I actually also had one example. There was uh, a lab that I know, and there was a visiting scientist, which was an older man. And he immediately assumed one of the technicians was the professor because the professor was a woman. And he yeah. thought the woman will not be the professor. So he thought the technician was the professor. Yeah. And that's, heard, just, yeah. Yeah, that's just his assumption of what a professor should look like. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, also in meeting in meetings, if you have a first, like when I was just a PhD student, if you have a meeting and you're a young woman, then then sometimes people will not turn to you or something. Like uh, sometimes you're like ignored a little bit. But to be honest, I didn't really have that experience that much myself because I like talking also. So yeah, I'm always very uh, present. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So hopefully, it's also just improving i have a feeling like in, in my department at least that um the, the professors that are there are not super, like they're really supportive of all their uh, students so i don't think they really prefer men over women uh, i don't have that feeling yeah. but it's not everywhere uh, the same and what they also say is that you have like uh, until postdoc level it's a, a sort of the same but then when it becomes more um, limited the positions that are there when it becomes more of a battle then all of a sudden you're out like you're not considered anymore a lot because of implicit bias, but yeah. Yeah, that that's just yeah. ridiculous, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's not everywhere and it's just, um, yeah, sometimes it's the case. No. Yeah, so I'll go back to your working in academia and you like it because you want to stay in academia. Yes. Did you want to be like a scientist when you were a child or was there something else you wanted to be? Yeah, I don't think I had a super defined idea of what I wanted to be later. Um, I think I like I, I, when I think back uh, of things that I have mentioned that I wanted to become, I think I said like a writer or like a um, documentary maker for National Geographic, like nature, nature things, or I don't know, a teacher or something like that, a doctor. But uh, I don't think a scientist um, was on my list yet. But I really, I did enjoy a lot uh, doing the projects that we had to do in elementary school. So I do remember that I really liked that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I also didn't have any scientists in my environment. So I, I didn't know really. Uh, yeah, that makes a big difference in the things that I've heard. Because like the first uh, scientist that was on the podcast, both his parents were in academia and he was just like really enclosed in an environment like academia. is That's the world. And he yeah. asked, he remembered when he was a child, he asked his friends like, oh, so what phd do your parents have but not, that, that's not that's not yeah okay um so yeah I, I get it a lot of is based on the environment you live in yeah. so assuming that you are not a scientist do you know what you would have been then would you have, have been like a writer or something well yeah i think it's very hard to make it as a writer maybe even harder that's than me to make it in academia. <laughs> um yeah, but the thing is, I'm very interested in many things. So I don't know if I hadn't gone into science, it could have gone uh, many different ways, I think. Might have gone into politics or into like in the background, not in the foreground, like more yeah. advisor or whatever. Or like um, what I sometimes think is uh, when I'm old and I'm a bit fed up with everything, that I would like to work in a small library. 
Yeah, oh, that really? you, yeah, that very small. That there's not too many people coming in, and you can help everybody find their books and then just read a whole day. <laughs> can I assume that you just love books and love reading? Yes, yes, yeah. And actually, so you have been in academia. You left academia. Do you know what you wanted to be as a child? That you want to be a scientist? That you want to be in IT or something totally different? Uh, to be honest, I don't remember like. Uh... Maybe when I was in kindergarten, probably was thinking, you know, the usual being a fireman or policeman or whatever. But in the meantime, I didn't really have, I think, like idea who I would become. But I remember during uh, high school, I really liked history. I was even uh, planning to go study history. But then I, yeah, I got like a spot in university, both for history and also for uh, um ecology and i was thinking maybe the ecology would be like more practical and so that's why i decided for that if you are interested in multiple things it's good to have something with yeah a practical application afterwards yeah that's true so uh Lisa, lot thank you a lot for everything that you have said but do you actually have a take-home message for the people listening Yes, um, my take home message is that uh, wood is a very sustainable building material. So um, wood and bio-based building materials, please consider using them when you're building. And if you do, um, ask around for an architect or a contractor who, is, who likes working with it and uh, who really knows about wood. So that would be my take home message. Okay, so use more wood when you're building your home actually, or in your yes. home. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, that's great. This was the ninth episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Lizelotte Linje for the information and Oit Kangur for the questions. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.